Blog Talk Radio. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as tired as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. You built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Cancer Show. That's hot. Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Zachary. Hello, hello, Monday, November 2nd. And we are once again live on the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adults with cancer. We are your friendly neighborhood weekly social webcast. Finally giving that voice to nearly 5 million young adults affected by cancer. Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Well, get busy living because the stupid cancer show is on the air. Welcome to tonight's broadcast, my friends. We are here to change the world one chemo infusion at a time and share all of our collective crapness. This broadcast is a program of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation. One of the nation's leading grassroots advocates for the next generation of survivors and co-survivors. It's all about us, and we're bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight and sticking it to a system that's ignored us for far too long. The past three decades of cancer progress have failed the next generation, so there's no reason to think the next 30 will be any different unless change happens right here, right now. Join us and be the change that needs to happen. Hell, we invented Google, Facebook, Twitter, and kept Sanjaya on American Idol all those weeks. We can do anything that we want. This is Generation Cancer. It is our fight and our duty to give back to our own generation. We have the sheer numbers, the voting power, and the influence to change the rules because permission is no excuse for cure and survivorship. It's all that matters. Last week's show, Parenting with Stupid Cancer, guests Aaron Spicer, Jamie Reno, Jen Singer, Julie Larson, and Roseanne Curry, a.k.a. Baldy Lux. Great show. Check it out at itunes.i2y.com and the podcast. Tonight's show, Stupid Cancer Brain Fog, with our guest, Kate Goldberger, Cammy Dean, Kate Burton, and Adele Davidson. So hello, my friends, and welcome to yet another fun, fun, and exciting romp through the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show. And a stupid cancer welcome to all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network, especially anyone who was at our Stupid Cancer Halloween Scaretacular last night in uh, Saturday night in New York City. 
an amazing event. Coming at you live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a 13-year. Coming up on 14-year, young adult, pediatric brain cancer survivor, joining me live in the studio. As always, our chief cancer anarchist, Jack Buffard. Hello, Jack. Hi, Matt. I'm in a fog. Oh, well, you'll fit right in. And it's not just from the chemo. No, it's because the Phillies are winning. It's from the Scaretacular. Oh, my goodness. All right, Jack will be monitoring our live, concurrent, interactive chat room. So if you have something to say, let him have it and grill him with simple questions to stump his brain fog little mind. In our lives... Shouldn't it be hard? What? Shouldn't it be hard? You're not allowed to interrupt me. Sorry. (laughs) In our live studio audience... Kate Goldberger, Woo! I2I board member, and in our spotlight tonight. Hey, Kate. Hey, all. How you doing? I'm great. How are you? Are you sure you're great? Uh, I'm working on it. Okay. Okay, that's close enough, Jack. Oh, Thanks. Jesus Christ. Oh, my goodness. Another one. All right. And as always, it is my pleasure, uh, esteemed pleasure, to introduce my official partner in crime here on the Stupid Cancer Show, hailing from the Windy City of Chicago, fellow young adult survivor, author of the acclaimed book, Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s, the lovely talented, blogtastic, and spectacular Carol Rosenthal. Hello, Jack and Matthew. Hi, Carol. Hi. Hi. Jack, that brain fog thing is not going to work. Everyone knows you're an idiot by, by default. Oh, they do? So yeah. I, can, I should just you not just, even cover no, it? No, don't even try that. Oh. <clears throat> okay. How are you, Carol? I'm great. What have you been up to? Um, I was blogging today about um, a subject that I think hits home very close to both of us called, um, are you too lazy to exercise? <laughs> the answer is no, yes. I know you and I talk about this a lot, Matthew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um. And, uh, <laughs> what kind of response are you expecting? Well, I was a little bit worried because I was afraid that people were going to send me messages motivating me to exercise, which... I'm not sure that I could handle. Um, I just kind of more wanted to commiserate with people who completely agree with me that exercise is boring. I detest it, yet I am seeing that it needs to be done. So I thought if I write about it, I can procrastinate even more on exercising. Well, it's like a vicarious sort of way of thinking you're helping yourself, perhaps. Mm, yeah, maybe. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think in the process of writing it, I have actually convinced myself that I should exercise. So that's a step. Well, I mean, it's, I don't think there's anyone out there that says, you know what, I don't need to exercise. You know, like, it, it, have we reached the point of saturation in this country where people are complacent not exercising? Does that make sense? I think everyone knows you're supposed to exercise, but just most people don't because couches are very comfortable. They are, and I have three of them in my house. That is true. I've been in your house, and they're very comfortable. Yeah, they're really, really comfy. So, it's And if everybody exercised, who would be on The Biggest Loser? Huh? Yeah, we, we'd lose so many reality shows. I'm going to start exercising because I want Johnny Emmerman arms. I want to be Johnny Emmerman for Halloween next year. We need a Johnny Emmerman reality show. <laughs> yeah. Being Johnny. Being Johnny. Exactly. Well, I, I wanted to touch upon your blog uh, post from from this week or last week about God and cancer because... I actually, I mean, I, I read your blog every week, but I, I, it's hard to scroll through all the comments because you're so popular, you have so many people commenting, but the comments on this particular post were fascinating. I think you opened up Pandora's box of onco-theology, if you would, 
and and uh, talk a little about about the kind of response you think you've gotten on there. It's been well, incredible. My favorite comment that I got, not just on this post, but it might be one of my favorite comments on my blog ever, comes from Bridget, who is saying nobody wants someone pissing in their Jesus flakes. Woo! All right, that gets that gets total applause. That gets one of these. Ooh. There we go. Now, I are Jesus that. flakes like a brand? Flake, or are they like is super that, healthy? Or is that post or general? Are they, are they like golden grams, like with the halo? Or oh, no. they're in the cereal aisle next to the Wheaties. Yes. And you know, it's true. Nobody wants anyone pissing in their Jesus flakes, so we end up not talking about God ever at all. And I was so excited because people just like couldn't get enough of this God talk on my blog, and we're like, oh. Uh, I don't want to offend anyone, but here's what I'm actually thinking and feeling. And it was like, great, you didn't offend anyone, and you actually told us what you're thinking and feeling. And I just thought it was really good conversation. There were like recovering Catholics coming out of the woodwork, um, just got an Orthodox Jewish comment a couple hours ago on the blog, and a lot of people talking about how their lack of belief in God was actually really relieving and supportive to them through their cancer experience. And that's something that I don't hear of much. You know, I think often when we hear like atheist talk or non-believing in God talk, it's kind of like, oh, I don't believe in this end of conversation. And it was really great to hear from cancer patients for whom they don't believe in God and that that's actually is supportive to them. It's not just a pissy attitude. It's like, you know what, it's an attitude that's helping them get through and and is making a lot of sense to them. And so I just thought it was a really great conversation. So by the by the laws of syllogism, for those of you out there with math, sequential math nerddom in, inside your body deep, um, does that mean that cancer begets atheism? No. I was just going for a big leap there. Okay. No, I mean, I think that there are people who are atheists to begin with and people who also have come to question their belief in God, not necessarily from the how could God do this to me or, oh, if life is this sucky, surely there must be no God. But through actually, you know, I think that we do stop and look around us when we get a diagnosis and it makes us think hard about who we are and where we come from. And in spending time thinking about that, it's possible that you'll have a deeper connection to God, and it's possible that it's like, you know what, maybe this doesn't make so much sense to me in this way anymore. So I I don't think it's one of those like, oh, it'll make you go either way kind of things. Um, I just think that for a lot of people, we've thought a little bit more about it because of our diagnosis. Okay. I mean, I just remember when I was uh, diagnosed, I actually returned back to religion because I was like, you know, sort of that disenfranchised post-bar mitzvah, I don't care anymore guy. And I, 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 don't know, I guess I felt a need to reconnect and feel like I was amongst people that understood what I was going through. But it wasn't really like medical peer support. It was just like, hey, look what I went through, and maybe this is something the universe is telling me, but I didn't think it was the universe and whatever. But I don't know. I, 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 I like Janine Garofalo's term. She calls it secular humanitarianism, and it's like the evolution of atheists, I guess, or, or agnosticism, where you're, you, like you said, you believe in people. And I think that makes a whole lot of difference, and I think it shuts down a lot of people who disagree with you because you can't really disagree with that. Yeah, I, 
I think that if we talk about what our beliefs are in a way that's just opening and inviting, I'm kind of surprised how many people are like, hmm, you don't believe in God? I'm like, no, I don't. I mean, when I was first, I, I've never believed in God, but I was really into the whole Jewish community thing when I was first yes, diagnosed. Exactly. And it was really relieving for me every Friday night to go to synagogue even though I don't know what prayer is or that I actually was doing it, just to have this place to go to at the end of the week on Friday night and just be like, oh, my God, I can just fall apart here and just sit and think. And all of this tension that you hold through the whole week of, like, going to treatment and going to see doctors and on the phone with insurance companies, and to just know you can sit in this room for, like, two hours and no one's going to bother you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> kind of deli- It was kind of delightful. So, yeah, I, I have to say I was... I was pretty into the Jewish community at the beginning of my cancer experience, and then as I write about in my book, over time, I started thinking more and more about my own mortality, which forced me to think about the fact that I don't actually really believe that there is a creator, and that that is sort of really comforting to me. I know that for people who believe that there is, that is not a comforting thought, but for me, it it just was a comforting thought to think there's nothing out there. (laughs) And... um, it just kind of, uh, it 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 really helped. What it it really helped me through. Well, everyone has to sort of find a place that makes sense to them, and I mean, there at least for me, there's no right or wrong. I think that that that's the whole point. And I, I mentioned this before on the show, but someone like George Carlin or Bill Maher, who are like you know devout agnostics, are very very straight up about why they're agnostics. <clears throat> it's because they they don't believe in certainty. People who believe in God, it's a lot of it's certain. People who are atheists, it's certain. And I'm of the ilk that nothing is certain. Oh, well, I'm of the ilk that there certainly is not God. <laughs> I'm very certain about that. I think it also comes down to like, but it's also about personal definition too. If you're talking yeah. about a man in the sky with a beard and the clouds, no, that guy doesn't exist. But if you're talking about like the metaphysics or the um, the, the synchronicity, the science of uh, molecules and atoms and energy, uh, that's that's real stuff, and I, I tend to agree with with the direction that that moves into. I don't believe in stuff like the secret, where you can create your own world for yourself by thinking it and imagining it. I think that's just you know abuse <laughs> of metaphysics. Do you, do you have like a vomit sound effect that you can play with that one? Um, like sure. a burping or anything? Uh, I. Yeah, I mean, I think anytime someone says the word "the secret," that's not the right one. Uh, yeah, that's maybe Jack can just like follow me around, and every time I hear that, there can be like, a tremendous Jack belch that like goes out into the universe. What about this one? Yeah, Yosef. <laughs> no, that's not gonna that's work. That's for Jason. <laughs> that's never gonna that's work. That's for Malat. Yeah. Could, could there be could there be a more anti-Jewish sentiment than if you think positive thoughts, good things will happen to you? I know. Right? Have a comment for? <laughs> yeah. Let's just think about that for a minute. If Jewish positive thoughts, no, that's not going to work. It's not like South Park where Jesus shows up every couple episodes. No, wouldn't that be great though? <laughs> like it was my gra- my grandmother's he birthday had, was last week. Though. Yeah, exactly. My grandmother's birthday was last week. She turned 89. I God bless her. Then. And I was looking for a birthday card for her, and I was opening up all these grandma ones, and they were like, Grandma, I love you because you taught me how to have a positive attitude. Oh, like, God. Yeah, right. Clearly, you've never met my grandma. Yeah, my grandma was a fabicina, as we say in Yiddish. What does that mean? Just a disgruntled miscreant. Hmm. Like a misanthrope. Like, she, she, was a, she wasn't evil. 
you know, she was a nice person, but she was raised in the Holocaust. She was raised in like, you know, Germany invaded Poland and she was the, the last of her siblings and, you know, had a really, really rough life. So she was never really happy and she was never really, you know, joyous and, you know, you know, I, I mean, I love her. She's in heaven now. I miss her. I mean, I say heaven <laughs> metaphorically, of course, out there. But in the sense Watch that, out. I'm going to piss in your heaven flakes. I know, my heaven flakes. But, you know, she's the kind of woman where, and this is a really, talk about attitude. She went to the doctor at like 93 years old, and he said, Ida, there's nothing wrong with you. And her response was, well, what am I going to die from? <laughs> Well, that's a very logical question. I know it is, isn't it? It's very rational. It is. It's very rational. I like her grandma. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I loved her. I missed her. She, she'll be, uh, she passed away 18 months ago. But uh, mm. God, God rest your soul. Hannah Gittel, we miss you. Uh, and, I, and on that note, tells me with that name, she was a really good cook. No, she was a terrible cook. Never mind. <laughs> okay. Actually, I don't even know. That's my mother. My mother will listen to the podcast and yell at me for saying all the wrong stuff. But let's get to the news. Let's get that over with. And uh, we'll move on to our guest. So here we go. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Okay, during this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, we announce worthy news stories to our adoring listeners to inform them about the latest and greatest in free young adult programs, services, events, projects, and other stuff. If you have something that you'd like to hear broadcast during this part of the show, please fax it to us at 877-794-6902 or email jack at, jack at i2y.com. That's jack at i2y.com. Take it away, Jack. Thank you, Matthew. And here is your stupid cancer news. Got a new item. YACS, Washington, D.C., introduces the resurgence of the YA. CSDC, a young adult cancer support community made possible by our friends at Smith Farm. Please join them on the first Tuesday of every month from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. for various group events and wellness activities. All events are held at Smith Farm, located at 1632 U Street Northwest. For more information, please call area code 202-483-8600 or email yacsofdc at gmail.com. Cook's Children's Adult Group Annual Retreat is being held January 29th through the 31st of 2010. Contact Lisa Bashmore at 682-885-2125 for more information. Why don't you guys surf on over to events.i2y.com. Events.i2y.com is the official social calendar of the Young for this Cancer Foundation. Survivors in Chicago, leave your parents at home. Come celebrate with other adolescent and young adult cancer, childhood cancer survivors. This Saturday night from 5 to 8 at the Palace Grill on West Madison Street in Chicago. The celebration includes dinner prizes and an open forum featuring cancer survivors Johnny Immerman, Matthew Zachary, and George Lamparis. Again, Chicago, Saturday, November 7th. As Carol mentioned at the top of the show, are you a young adult cancer survivor who would like to begin an exercise program? If so, contact Santina Horowitz at area code 401-793-8124, or you can reach Santina by email at shorowitz at lifespan.org.
The Leukemia Lymphoma Society and I2Y invite you to our young adult get-together Monday, November 23rd at Bertucci's on Merrick Avenue in Westbury. Come meet other young adults diagnosed with cancer, chat, and get to know each other. All young adult survivors are invited. For more information, contact I2Y friend Karen DeMario at... Karen DeMero. DeMero. We know like her. I know I do, and I knew I was going to butcher it. It's the lemonade I had at the Scaretacular. It's still affecting me. Go ahead. Karen DeMero at 631-752-8500. Next up, we have 70K.org. That's the word 70, the letter K.org. There are approximately 70,000 people aged 15 to 39 diagnosed with cancer every year. For over two decades, there has been little or no improvement in, the survival, in survival for this age group. By signing this bill, you are supporting the Adolescent and Young Adult Cancer Bill of Rights to be established as a standard for care to meet the needs of this underserved population. Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s. It's the fabulous book that was written by our fabulous Stupid Cancer co-host, Carol Rosenthal. Everything Changes does the sugarcoating off of the Young Adult Cancer Experience and can be found at everythingchangesbook.com. Cancer Care is offering several young adult groups, such as Living with Cancer, Life After Cancer, Young Adult Loss of a Parent, Young Women with Breast Cancer, Young Adult Individual Grief Counseling, and Young Adult Caregiver. For information on all of Cancer Care's programs, contact our friend Julie Larson at jlarson at cancercare.org. And finally, if you are a male who needs to do some sperm banking before you start your treatment, head on over to liveonkit.com. Live sperm banking by mail is made possible by our good friends at Fertile Hope. And for all your fertility needs, whether you're a man or a woman, head on over to fertilehope.org. And that, my friends, is your Stupid Cancer News. All righty. What time is it? 9.22. In our Survivor Spotlight tonight is Kate Goldberger, diagnosed with a Philadelphia-positive acute lymphocytic leukemia in September of 1995, her senior year of high school. Given a 10% chance of living for one year, you got to love those odds. Without a bone marrow transplant, she received an allergenic bone marrow transplant from an unrelated donor. Found through the National Marrow Donor Registry in January of 96 when I was diagnosed with cancer. It's all about me. And she's currently 12 years cancer-free. A longtime outspoken advocate and volunteer working for Ronald McDonald House and the Harvard Medical School's Hype for Life program. She came to I2I in 2008 and in the summer of 2009 joined our board of directors. My pleasure to welcome to the show the one and the only... Kate Goldberger. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> Thanks, Kate, Matt. Kate, have you met Jack? Yeah, yes, I've met Jack. You could, you could come a little closer. Don't be shy. <laughs> come right over here. Oh, okay, okay. That's enough. Thank you. We don't see a lot of Jack. He's only here on Mondays. Yeah, right. I see plenty of Jack. Thank you very much. And it's almost 14 years, actually. Well, that, well, I know you're reading that, but that's okay. Well, send me the right bio next time. Well, that bio's old. Will you, you stop making noise? Jesus, Jack, what's wrong with Jack's you? Jack's done with the news, and he thinks he can make a lot of noise now. Yeah, I really think you should practice what, you, what you're supposed to read on the air so you don't flub it. Like, okay, I like you're my role model <laughs> for that. Okay. I think it's practice what you preach, Jack. Yes, exactly. Exactly. In any case, Kate, so you're, you're a great example of a long-term childhood survivor who is now in their 30s, 
And Ooh, do we have to talk about that? that well, I would have said 40s <laughs> if I didn't like you, but you're in your 30s. Ouch, I'm not in my 40s. You're in your early 30s, and yes, you're making you. it look good. But my point <laughs> is that I2Y is an organization for young adults affected by cancer, and I always like to make the distinction that it doesn't matter when you were diagnosed with cancer so long as you're in your 20s and 30s. And one-third of the young adult cancer community are long-term childhood survivors. And it's always interesting to meet the people who were diagnosed in their teens rather than in their single digits who are now in their 30s. I think that's a completely different experience. So I'd just like you to talk a little bit about what it was like to be, uh, how old were you? You were 17. You were 17. You know, what that was like. Obviously, you're in high school. Things are very different than when you were in grade school or grammar school. Um, and, uh, you know, where were you living at the time and what was life like? Sure. Um, I mean, and it's very important to say, I mean, we talk about AYA, Adolescent Young Adult Cancer, and um, that's really our age group that I, I'm too young for this deals with, and um, that's 15 to 40. So 17 is right in that range, um, and we really do try to um, handle all of those. Jack, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm just bringing it a little closer. I'm sorry. Okay, sorry. Okay, we're having a little technical difficulties here. Um, so it's just really important to understand that um, adolescent young adult cancer is not just people in their 20s and 30s. Um, obviously, I was diagnosed at 17. I was in high school living with my parents, of course. I was not <laughs> a uh, minor living on my own or anything. I have a really great family. Um, so I was diagnosed actually the first week of my senior year of high school. Um, very scary. I was getting ready to go to college. Um, I was actually an athlete, so I was getting ready to play basketball in college. Um, and they actually say the fact that I was in great shape was one of the reasons I did so well. Um, so I kind of, being on the cusp of being an adult, um, but not being a child, but still being viewed as a child, living in my parents' house, um, it was really a little bit difficult. Um, my parents made it really easy for me because they allowed me to make a lot of my own decisions, but that's often not the case. Um, the doctors tend to look at your parents and talk to them and not to you. Um, so my parents are really great about saying, no, it's her life. You need to speak to her. It's her decisions on what we're going to do. And, you know, she needs to be involved in all the decisions and um, we're not keeping anything from her. Um, so they were really great about that, but that's really not what happens usually. So um, I was really lucky in that, in that case. Did you have, um, I mean, the social issues of, of being in high school? I, we know a lot of teenagers, which is still an ironic gap in care, that there's just such a lack of support resources for teenagers these days. Um, what, what do you think, did you lose friends? Were, were there uh, major stigmas when you were, I mean, being bald in high school, I can't even imagine what that's like, let alone being female. Is there there's something you talk about there? Yeah, I mean, for me, I grew up upstate. I, you know, I was I was in Binghamton um, when I was in high school, Vestal actually. And for me, it was actually went the opposite way. Um, my community was very supportive. Um, I didn't even wear a wig. Everybody knew I was sick. It really wasn't something that I hid from anyone. Um, but I'm also a very outgoing person, so. Um, I did a lot of um, publicity around the fact that I was sick. We did a bone marrow donor drive. Um, so it, it really wasn't something that I hid from every, anyone, and everyone in my school was really supportive, but I went to a smaller school. So had I gone to a bigger school or lived in a larger city, it might have been different. Um, I think the fact that I did live in a smaller community, there weren't other kids or young adults like me that had cancer. There wasn't any kind of formal support group. So while I did have a supportive family and a, lots of really great supportive friends, there wasn't anyone like me. So while they did everything they possibly knew to do, 
there wasn't anybody for me to go to that knew what I was going through, um, which is why I feel so strongly about I2Y now is I wish I could have been there for me when I was going through it, um, which is why I'm so passionate about what we do. So how did you find I2Y? I, I remember, I don't actually remember meeting you per se, but I know like we <laughs> met sometime. How did that happen? Um, actually, because I'm a Binghamton University alumni as well, they did a piece on you in the alumni magazine, oh, and I found it. it. Yes, oh, that's how it happened. I and I actually just went um, to Evan's book signing, and that's where I met you. Yes, at the Barnes & Noble. At event. the Barnes & Noble at Lincoln Center, yes. Jack? I was there. Yeah, but no one cares. Did, did, did we meet that night? Do we have an anniversary? You were still. You were. It was right after you were treated, so you were really bald and still fat and ugly. I I looked like I was just ugly. I'm gonna post a picture. You were totally fat and bald then, and you were behind me online, and you had already met Evan. So Evan was like pushing me out of the way to get to you. So he was (laughs) like, "Ew, who are you? Get out of the way. Let me talk to Jack." That's how that went. (laughs) Right, and I I went from being fat to (laughs) phat, or so he thinks. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I mean, I'm really glad that you found I2Y, and, and clearly, you know, you're you're the embodiment of why I started this organization, why it's doing what it's doing right now, and I couldn't think of a better person to be on our board. Um, but I think in terms of what you have to offer the survivor community is incredibly powerful because it, it, it talks about the what's next. Uh, I talk to a lot of newly diagnosed people or people email me or come to the show or, or to the, the, the organization that you know. We put you in touch with them. I just finished treatment, and I don't know what to do with the rest of my life, and we're sort of a pickup. Now, you, how many months or weeks were you going through this process, and how old were you when you came out clean? Sure. Um, I was diagnosed in uh, September of 95, and I was 17. I had my bone marrow transplant in January of 96, followed by a year of um, isolation following a bone marrow transplant because I had no immune system. So it was probably about 18 months of treatment, um, and then I was done quote-unquote, done. Um, I had no treatment after that. Um, But cancer is something you live with all your life. While you're not taking pills or having treatments, you know, you're dealing with all of the repercussions, one of which we're going to talk about tonight, the chemo brain phenomenon, which is probably one of the uh, (laughs) more annoying things that goes on. But um, you know, that's one of the things that is great about I2I is being able to talk to other long-term cancer survivors about the long-term effects of cancer treatments and cancer. Um, and right now I just totally lost my train of thought. Well, that's, well that was my point. We're going to wrap up in a second and bring the other guests on because t- tonight's about chemo brain and brain fog. So, so <laughs> you, you sort of reiterated the whole purpose of our show tonight. And do you feel that you experienced that sort of side effect is a late, late, late-term effect of all the crap you went through. <laughs> Sorry. What did you say? Can you repeat that? Jack was uh, distracting me. No, that was fake chemo brain. <laughs> Jack, pay attention. Anyway, my, my final question to you is that, you know, tonight's show is on brain fog and chemo brain. It's been disputed that it doesn't exist, that it does exist, but do you feel like long-term, you know, consequences of your being treated so at, at such a young age uh, have come back to haunt you like the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I had a, I had the trifecta of cancer treatments. I had chemo, I had radiation, and a bone marrow transplant. So anything I could have, I had. Um, I think that, you know, I had a ton of prednisone. I have tons of after effects of that. I had, you know, the chemo brain. I had minor effects of it right after, but I have so much more now. Um, I'm not nearly old enough to um, have, you know, aging <laughs> mental issues, but I definitely, I mean, the short-term memory loss is 
highly significant, as you saw just a moment ago when I was in the middle of speaking and completely forgot what I was going to say. Um, I mean, it happens all the time. And, you know, the more you talk, especially now being a part of this organization, the more I talk to other cancer survivors, the more we find what we have in common, are, you know, and the fact that people would say it doesn't exist, you have to know that these are people that are not experiencing these symptoms. All right. Well, um, thank you so much. You're going to stick around because you're here in the studio to um, – talk with the rest of our guests tonight so it's time to bring out our uh, our, our other guests so without further ado nine thirty-two. we're bringing out here cammy dean is a 28 year old thyroid cancer patient mother of two kids are two and seven years old after her cancer treatment she returned to college study accounting and mathematics to make us all look dumb. She lives in the Flint, Michigan area. Kate Burton was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 38. She thinks of herself as a senior citizen of the young adult crowd. Three years later, she's still adjusting to life after cancer with her full-time job, husband, two kids aged four and eight, menopause, and more. Kate has no experience in writing or PR and blogs because it's more effective and less expensive than therapy. I love that. If you want to know more about her blog, check out AfterCancerNowWhat.com. Please welcome to the show both Kate Burton and Tammy Dean. Hey, guys. We got you both on the show, Kate and Cammy. Listen to that applause. Hey, guys. It's Kate. Hey, guys. I'm going to turn this over to Carol, and uh, let's have a, 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 a what, what are we talking about? Oh, I'm sorry. Brain I'm cancer. I'm sorry, what? Uh, yes, what? Huh? I've got mail. Go ahead. Kate, Kate and Cammy. Hi. Hi. Hey, Carol. I'm excited to have you guys on here talking about um, cancer brain fog. And, you know, one of the reasons why I thought we should call this show Cancer Brain Fog is because not all of us have actually had chemo and we're still dealing with brain fog. And I'm I'm actually one of those people. I have thyroid cancer. And... There's actually only one kind of chemo that's even approved by the FDA for use with thyroid cancer patients. We usually have radioactive iodine treatment. So chemo isn't hardly ever used with um, thyroid cancer patients. Yet, you know, I was reading an article called Thyroid Cancer and Young Adults, and it was written by a bunch of super smart MDs at MD Anderson. And in it, they said, when compared to survivors of other cancers, thyroid cancer survivors were more likely to report memory problems. So this is definitely uh, an issue for all kinds of cancer patients, even those of us who might not have had uh, chemo. So I want to start off by asking a couple of questions to Cami um, before we move on to talking to the Kates, because Cami is a thyroid cancer patient. Um, So Cami, I'm just curious if you can tell me some ways in which your mind or cognitive functions have changed since you've been diagnosed or since you've gone through treatment. I I just noticed that it seemed like all of my brain function um, kind of slowed to a crawl. Um, I had a hard time remembering things. I could be in the middle of a sentence and forget what I was going to say at the end of the sentence. Um, word recall is a big issue. Um, I I can never think of the right word. I'm like, uh, uh what's that word again all the time? Um, I'm just not as sharp or as quick. Uh, things don't seem to click in my head like they used to so easily before. Like I know A and I know B, but I can't quite put A and B together. Um, 
math in my head has always been an easy thing for me, and now it just takes way too much effort. It's very difficult for me, and I make silly mistakes all the time, so I don't try because I look like a dummy sometimes. So um, those are a lot of the things. Right before I came on tonight, I asked my husband, I said, so what is the biggest thing that you've noticed? And he just looked at me and laughed. He said, you asked me the same question about ten times in a five-minute span. And I said, I'm so sorry, but I do. I just forget I've asked, forget he's answered me. I probably asked him five five times tonight whether he fed the dog yet or not, and he said yes every time, and finally he just looks at me like, I've already answered this, but I continue to ask because I just forget those details. And I'm curious about you two, Kate. What are are some of the changes that you guys have noticed in your cognitive function and your memory? How how is your brain working differently? Kate, you want to go first? Sure, Kate. I'll go first. <laughs> <laughs> as long as one of the Kates goes first, who cares? Um, for me, verbal fluency is a huge thing. It's funny to hear Cammy say the same thing. I've been blaming this on chemo all this time, and I, I may be wrong. Maybe it was all the radiation. Who knows? Um, but I found that I blog because if I can't think of the word, I can just save my thing until later as opposed to in the middle of a conversation. <laughs> Um, I also sing, and I have a, a much, much harder time retaining the the work and, and need to spend more time in memorization and in learning parts and things like that. That's just a huge thing. You yeah, know, I, I think the biggest thing for me is mostly at work. I mean, I find that I have to always walk around with a pad of paper and a pen because if my boss says something to me or asks me to do something and I don't write it down, it's gone. Five minutes, you know, I'll be like, he'll be like, did you do that? And I'll be like, what are you talking about? Um, If I don't do it, it's gone. Um, It's funny you you said that uh, because I supervise staff and I've I've got them all trained now where they can't talk to me in the hallway about anything that they need me to do in my office. It's not allowed to anymore. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because when I get back to my office, it's gone. Yeah, we we find these little ways of adapting. I I adapt because my my memory is terrible, and so when I'm on the radio, either on the Stupid Cancer Show or on other radio shows, I sit and I write down little notes as I'm talking or as the host of the show is talking because by the time they ask a question, it comes time for me to answer it. I can't remember what the question was from the beginning <laughs> to the end of it. It's really hard. And one thing that was really terrifying is when they were recording me on Fresh Air with Terry Gross and they were checking the sound levels, they're like, what's that noise? What's that noise? And it was me writing. And they're like, sorry, I don't think you can write. And I thought, oh, my God, how am I going to get through this interview if I can't write? You know, I, it made me realize how much I had a system in place. So I'm wondering if you guys have little systems in place, like what Kate was talking about, you know, you can't talk to me in the hallway. Are there things and tricks that you guys do to help with your memory or to help with other problems that you have, you know, doing the simple math, things like that? Um, yeah, this is Cammie again. I um, I use a calculator before when I never would have, um, even in class, you know, working on things, the simple math I would have always just done in my head and went along, but I'm so afraid that I'm going to make a a silly little error and then it'll mess everything up, so I resort to my calculator all the time. I am also a huge list person now. I can't do anything without a list, and um, I lately have been, because I'll start one list in one place and one list in another place, Uh I know you're supposed to keep them all together, Um, but sometimes before I can get to my list, I forgot what I was going to put on my list, so (laughs) since I normally do have my cell phone with me, I have a little notepad in there, and I'll just make even just a one-word note to remind me what to put on my list when I get to my list, so that's another coping mechanism that I use. 
Yeah, I live by the Post-it software on my desktop. <laughs> I couldn't live without it. And then I, but at the end of the day, I just put them all, I print them all out and I put it in my purse. And because other, I have a, you know, a real Post-it note next to my bed at night because before I go to sleep at night, I'll think of eight things that I forgot about during the day <laughs> that are coming back to me. I, I live with, I'm telling you, I live with pen and paper all the time. Absolutely. I mean, I when I started having problems, I didn't really necessarily address the fact that I was having problems. And so instead I was making these lists that I would lose, or I had five different calendars going. I had my home calendar, my office calendar, my desk calendar, my kid calendar. <laughs> <laughs> so I wound up cell phone again, like you were saying. I wound up getting a, a PDA with a calendar system in it. Yeah. I'm curious about if you notice any patterns. Like, are there times in which your memory or other cognitive functions are better or worse for you? Do you notice it fluctuating at all? I do a little bit. It's more with, um, I think, how much my brain is trying to handle at the same time. Um, if there's several things going on, it's like it just gets overwhelmed and my brain just <laughs> doesn't seem to function anymore. It's just like, whoa, I can't handle all of this. Um, so, you know, sometimes the less that's going on, the easier it is. But when there's multiple things going on, and I have two young children, that happens all the time. I mean, I'll go to answer one of their questions and forget that I have something on the stove. I mean, it's just... Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's just too much going on, and I forget then. I think for me, it... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kate. No, I just was going to say, I think for me, it happens... Really, according to my normal biorhythms, I'm, like, very much a night person, so I feel like I'm much better, you know, between, like, 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. than I am any other time of the day, and it gets really bad at, like, 4 o'clock in the afternoon when I'm really tired and ready to, like, crawl under my desk and take a nap. Um, You know, I just think that because my body is tired, my brain is that much more tired, and I tend to lose focus, and it gets just that much worse. You know, now that you mentioned that, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just, Cammy made me, th- I, I don't know how old your kids are, but mine are four and eight, and I used to be queen of the multitaskers. I could check my email and listen to music and sign the homework and do a puzzle, and now if there's more than one thing, I just have to stop people. I can't multitask anymore at all. Oh, yeah. You know, one, just... one thing that I noticed, well, I was blogging about cancer brain fog, and I was specifically talking about the issue of self-esteem because I think we talk a lot about, like, what the problems are and how we deal with, like, the physical problems of, like, having lists or trying to jog our memory or using a calculator. And and so I brought up the issue of self-esteem and how does this impact people's self-esteem. And I was just amazed by the emotion that was coming out on my blog at how this makes us feel about ourselves. And I'm really curious if you guys can sort of comment on whether or not this has had an impact on your self-esteem or on on how you perceive yourself. Yes. <laughs> yes. I agree too. It has very much. I um you know, I I don't care so much about the scar and I don't care so much about the physical effects. I'm okay with those things. I kind of came to terms with those things when I got cancer. I realized that I was going to have to live with those things, but the cognitive issues are really difficult for me to deal with. Like I go to school and I'm in in these in my college classes and the professors are talking and it's just not clicking and I'm almost like I don't even want to speak up because I know this is so simple and things just aren't clicking and it makes me not want to speak up. Um, and I was normally the one that when people would say, hey, what's this plus this or this times this, I was always the one to just pop out the answer and 
I don't do that anymore because I'm just so afraid that I'm going to be like so far off. They're just going to look at me and laugh and be like, oh, so you're the numbers person? Yeah, right. Ha ha, you know. And that's just, I really um, do feel a lot, you know, more stupid, (laughs) to put it so nicely, than I used to. And it does affect my self-esteem quite a bit, actually. And I think you're a superhero for even trying to go to school. (laughs) (laughs) I can't even imagine trying to get economics in my head at this point. It is difficult sometimes. It does take me much longer to wrap my brain around it than it used to. I I just have to chime in here. It's Matt. My wife is in the chat room tonight, and she's almost like chomping at the bit to – if she was in the office right now in the studio, she would reel the mics away from both of us and go on a – about a 24-hour rant about my brain. Want me to get her on the phone? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I didn't have chemo, but I had the highest possible dose of brain radiation you could possibly get uh, at the age of 21 in 1996. So my therapy was a moving target. They didn't have any long-term, you know, ideas as to what could possibly happen. So my my side effect, I had 6,000 CG, 5940 CG to my brain. Holy crap. You don't even know what that means. No, it sounds, it sounds nasty. <clears throat> I mean, they give probably maybe, you know, 2,000, 2,500 these days. Wow. And, but most of that, they didn't have chemo back then for what I had. They have that today. So all that brain radiation is the equivalent of, we did the math, it was 3,000 lifetimes of radiation to my brain in three months. Wow. And so I, the fact that I'm even standing and cognizant to a certain extent, you know, 14 years later is impressive. But I definitely have significant cognitive issues and listening to everything that you're talking about, how you have to sort of um, manipulate your, your workflow to, you uh-huh. know, to your own. And, 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 and if people were observing you, you'd look like a freak. You know, looking, <laughs> I mean, my workflow, I, I have total ADD and bipolar right now because of everything that I've gone through. But I'm very, very efficient when I focus on one thing. But... You know, talking to my wife or talking to – I don't remember a damn thing about anything unless I'm reminded of it. But, I mean, yeah, I know like 20,000 people, but even the core people that I meet, I forget who they are. So I'm I right there totally with you. I totally attest to that. Yeah, and Kate and Jack and my wife are right here with me, all nodding their heads collectively. Um, Matt, but, do you ever feel like it affects your self-esteem? I, I Honestly, like I did. It did this Saturday at the, at the Halloween party because there were people there that I know I should have remembered their names. Uh-huh. And I, I completely forgot who they were, and I felt really bad. It angered and frustrated me. I mean, I'm, yep. I'm just like everyone else. It, it really pissed me off that I can't remember who these people are, and I really should. Jack? Yeah, and to attest to that, as someone who spends a lot of time with Matt, when Matt and I travel the country going to different cancer conferences and events where there's a lot of people, I'm like the, I'm like the girl in Devil Wears Prada who stands behind Meryl Streep and whispers <laughs> in her ear. Like who people are as they're coming toward him. So people are like, oh, Matt, Matt, Matt. And I'm like, that's Johnny Immerman from Immerman and Danger. <laughs> and he's like, oh, oh hey, Johnny, how you doing? Nice to see you again. And then the person doesn't feel slighted. Yeah. I wish oh, I had wow. one of those. <laughs> Everyone one. needs a Jack before it. Yeah, but I do not fetch a Starbucks. No, that's where don't. I draw the line. So I'm, I'm curious um, from the other Kates, have you, do you feel like it has changed your self-esteem or are there any times in which you feel embarrassed? because of how your brain is functioning? I think from my perspective, I mean, I've dealt with it a really long time. I mean, it's almost 14 years since I was in treatment, um, and it's gotten worse over the years for me. Um, And part of it is really the perception that people don't understand how it affects me. Um, I know I went back to school a couple years ago um, and had to take some tests, 
And it took me multiple times to pass the test. And they were professional certification tests. And, you know, my family was getting really frustrated with me. They're like, what's wrong with you? Aren't you studying? And I'm like, you don't understand. It's not that I'm not studying. I can't retain the information. Like, it does not stay in my head. And it wasn't, it, like, I've never, because I was a good student and it, it because I was in high school when I got sick, it just wasn't something that I had dealt with before. Um, so it was not that I was ashamed of it. It was just that they couldn't even comprehend why this was happening. Um, okay. So that it was just this whole other level of frustration that I felt yeah, from it. I often hear, hear people talking about the split between what we perceive inside ourselves about our brain and what other people do. Because when I talk about having these people are like, oh, my God, no way, you're sharp as a tack. And right. I think, God, you know, I at one time wanted to go get my master's or my Ph.D., and I'm never going to do that. I just, I am so not going to do that. You know, I decided to write a book instead. I'm very happy about that. But, you know, it's it, people just look at me and they're like, oh, no way, you're so sharp. And I just think if you only knew, like, what a fool I feel like a lot of the time when I open my mouth. And it's it's hard. And I feel the one thing that's so challenging for me is when my doctors kind of brush it off. So I'm curious oh, to know yeah. if you guys have talked to your doctors about this and what their response was. My oncologist um, kind of brushed it off, I'm, and I actually stopped him and said, you know, I'm really not kidding. I'm really serious about this. This is a real problem. Um, but, you know, I'm just thrilled to see if there's some research on it and see that people are actually talking about it, and I'm not getting a pat on the head, you know, because I went through surgical menopause through all of this. So that was, oh, well, it's not the key. Eh, no, it's menopause. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm 42 years old. I'm not senile. I, you know, um, my kids, I use my kids as a tool. Cami, you may learn to do this. I don't know how old yours are. They're two and seven. Okay, you can start using this. <laughs> I can't ever find the car when I come out. Ever. <laughs> ever. Yeah. I mean, awful. I'll go into an event for an hour and then spend 20 minutes looking for my car when I come out. But that's what the panic button on the keychain's for. You right. got it. I use that all the time. All the time. <laughs> and you'll say to the kids, okay, kids, let's everybody look at where we're parking the car. <laughs> Good idea. I'm going to use So that when that. you come out, you can go, okay, who's going to find mom's car? <laughs> this is why I live in Manhattan. <laughs> oh, bless you. Yeah, and but Kate... You lose your subway every day. I do. <laughs> Where did I put that R train? Where did I put that damn bus? That panic button. <laughs> so you guys, we are, we are really lucky that there is a lot more being written and talked about this. And, and I want to bring on our next guest. I'm going to ask you guys to stay on the line. We're going to chat with Adele a bit, and then there might be some time at the end for, for you guys to ask her questions or for her to ask you questions. So let's bring on Adele Davidson. All righty. Great. Here we go. Adele Davidson is an award-winning journalist and author of specializing in award-winning journalist and author. Oops, I'm being jacked tonight. Specializing in health, medicine, and personality profiles. She is the co-author with Dan Silverman, MD, PhD at UCLA, of Your Brain After Chemo, a practical guide to lifting the fog and getting back your focus. Her stories have appeared in the LA Times, Time Magazine, Parents, Parenting, Los Angeles, First for Women, UCLA Magazine, Community Oncology, California Lawyer, and Publications of Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in L.A., among others, and she has written health segments 
for the Discovery Health Television Network, living in Los Angeles. A real pleasure to bring on to the show Adele Davidson. Hello, Adele. Hello. You've got applause, my dear. Great to have you on the show. We're we're very excited to find out how we can make ourselves incredibly intelligent once again. <laughs> well, I don't know if I can help you. <laughs> beyond hell, I'm beyond hope. Jack's beyond hope, but maybe there are other people. It's, a, it's a tall order, guys. <laughs> I'll, I'll do the best that I can. You know, Adele. One of the last questions that I was asking the group of gals was about talking to their oncologist, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about. Getting, to, getting oncologists to acknowledge that people are experiencing cognitive deficits after treatment. It seems to be a real problem. Why is it such a struggle getting oncologists to acknowledge this? Well, you know, I, I, I can only guess um, based on what I've observed or, or what people have told me, but um, it definitely seems to be a huge problem. And um, I'll just repeat what my nurse practitioner told me. Um, and that is that she thinks that many oncologists, not all, because some oncologists are really, um, they're really versed about chemo brain or brain fog. I know that chemo brain isn't the term that everybody uses, so, and there, there are so many different terms, even chemonesia is a term. But um, what she told me was that many oncologists are more interested in cure rates than quality of life, yep. as harsh as that sounds. You know, they... They see their job as getting you medically well or stable, but they don't really want to deal with anything after that. They don't want to deal with the complaints. So that's one answer. Another answer is that some oncologists, believe it or not, just don't keep up with the literature, and they don't know that there has now been, in just the last few years, quite a bit published about um, cognitive dysfunction after chemotherapy. So those are two explanations. You know, one part that I really loved about your book is that it is so complete and thorough in talking about questions that people should be asking their oncologists, both prior to treatment and after they've started treatment. What are some of the most important questions that we can ask our doctors? Most of us are not even used to having these conversations because we kind of think our doctors are just going to, like, blow us off. So if we're talking to them about chemo brain, what are some of the questions we can ask them? Well, I think that you, I think that people should talk about the, the type of chemicals they'll be getting if they'll be getting chemotherapy. Um, I think you should ask your doctor, you know, what will I be getting? What are the side effects of what I'll be getting? And what has your doctor observed from prescribing those same chemotherapy regimens to their patients? And one of the problems is that chemotherapy is often given in combinations with other drugs. You know, um, you've talked about and some of your guests have talked about other things that they've had, like steroids and, and that kind of thing. And so it's kind of hard to tease out which drug might do what in combination with other drugs. So I think it's just a good idea to talk to your doctor about which drugs are more suspect than others. And is it possible to perhaps start on one drug, not in combination with other drugs, but start on one drug and see how you go with that, and then perhaps slowly add in other drugs and then, you know, be able to monitor if something affects your memory over time. In your book, you talk about um, the idea of going to see a neuropsychologist. What does a neuropsychologist do, and what is their role in working with cancer patients? Mm -hmm. A neuropsychologist pretty much monitors your brain function um, over time. Uh, you, you would go in to see the neuropsychologist. You would get a baseline that person, he or she, would 
basically do um, cognitive testing, kind of like IQ testing, but other types of testing that just measures your brain um, functioning. Um, and so you would get that baseline, and then you would come in periodically and have similar testing. And that way, the doctor and the neuropsychologist and your oncologist and you would be able to tell if you're declining cognitively or if you're remaining the same. And if it looks like you're declining in, in some aspects in your cognitive abilities, then you might want to talk to your oncologist about changing your drug regimen if that's possible um, or talk about uh, you know, cognitive exercises that you can do to help um, or just you know, whatever else you can do that might help if, if you don't want to change your drug regimen. And talk a little bit about what some of those other things are. You know, in your book, there's a whole section called Getting Your Brain Back on Track. And they brought up a lot of issues that are outside the realm of just the chemo and the drugs that that you're taking, you know, dealing with issues of, like, fatigue and depression. Can you talk a little bit about how those impact our cognitive functions? Right. You know, you had mentioned, too, about yourself that you had not had chemotherapy, um, but that you still had some brain fog. Um, one of the big issues is that scientists still, although they know that chemotherapy has a lot to do with it, um, they don't really know how much of it has to do with brain fog. I mean, there could be other issues as well. And so some of those factors um, could be stress. They could be depression, you know, other drugs, those kind of things. But what doctors know is that at least with depression and stress, they can also cloud memory. So some of the things that we can all do is to try and lower our level of stress and depression. Um, you know, so whatever that takes. I know in your in your um, your blog today you talked about exercise. Exercise is one way of, of de-stressing. Um, meditation is is really good. Yoga is good. Um, and I even know you know there's this really interesting study out of the University of Michigan. You know when you had talked about one of your other blogs about um, talking about religion and that kind of thing. Well, some people think that being out in nature is kind of like a religion and also a distressor. And, and the study out of Michigan showed they took two different groups of breast cancer patients. One had experienced nature two or three times a week and one did not. And they discovered that when you're out in nature, as crazy as that might sound to people, it, somehow there's something very primal about it that helps lower your level of stress. So, you know, whatever it is, um, whatever works for you to try and, and lower your stress level. And then there are other kinds of things, too, in terms of just, you know, very normal, usual things that you would suspect might help be helpful, such as eating properly, um, trying to eat, you know, um, omega-3 fatty acids, eating plenty of protein, um, trying to get good sleep, try and monitor your sleep cycle so that you're not just sleeping, but you're getting like really good quality sleep um, so you don't wake up a million times during the night, those kind of things. So I'm wondering, um, you know, you, you also are a cancer patient, and I'm curious to know about if you've had any brain fog after chemo and, and how you've dealt with it. I did. Um, yeah. Can you speak up just a little bit louder? I'm having oh, I'm a sorry, little hard yes. time hearing you. That's I okay. know. I have a soft voice. I'm going to have to try and, and be louder. Um, yes, about halfway through chemotherapy, um, I started to experience brain fog. And it was, it was 
pretty dramatic. And um, I remember going home. This was after my third round of, of chemo. And I had somebody in the house who was doing some work for us. And um, I remember I had to get out the checkbook and, and pay this person. And I had no clue how many zeros to put after the number. Um, so that was a pretty big issue. I did know enough to know that this was not a good time to be writing a check, and I put that person off. But I, I've had a lot of experiences, such as, um, you know, talk about getting lost or not finding your car, um, getting lost at the shopping mall, and, you know, actually uh, getting panicky because of it, um, and really pretty much having a panic <laughs> attack because I, I couldn't find my car. Um, so all the things that other people have it, have experienced, talked about, you know, like, you know, Kate had talked about verbal fluency, um, those type of things, word retrieval problems, you know, all of that. I think one of, one of the greatest tips that's in your book was to stop writing things on Post-it notes and scraps of paper to just get rid of scraps of paper because I write things down, but like everyone was saying, then I have like 10 lists. And so in your book, you recommend making these notes all in one place, like having one notebook where you write everything down and have to say it's kind of changed my life. Yeah, I, thank you. I, I have to do that because I used to be so disorganized. I would write on the backs of envelopes, and I would just have these pieces of just you know, junk all over my desk. And you know, I would put things on Post-it notes, a million Post-it notes all over my, my computer monitor. And that was so chaotic because the, the notes would just fall off. And so, you know, um, that just creates chaos. And you don't need, that's the worst thing. You don't want chaos. You want structure. You want systems. You want to be as organized as possible um, so that you can complete your task because multitasking is really difficult for people who are going through cognitive problems. You know, we've been talking in this past half hour a lot about the chaos of our lives. <laughs> and I'm wondering, I mean, I think, uh, I don't know if the, if the, the Kates and Cammie are, are still on the line. Are you guys still there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. So I'm wondering if in closing, I mean, we can talk a bit about um, what are some of the things that you would recommend or say as encouragement to new patients who have recently been diagnosed or who have just gone through chemo and they're just starting to feel these effects. And I'm wondering if we can just go around, if you guys can each say just some words of wisdom or recommendations you have to kind of... I don't know, I, I guess um, bring some hope to the chaos. I would just say, and this really isn't going to help them that much, but just to be patient with themselves and understand that it's a real thing. And even if people look at them like they're crazy, it is a valid thing that they're feeling and in, in going through and um, not to not to feel stupid about it or ashamed of it because people do look at you kind of funny when you're like, oh, I have brain fog, especially me. They're like, you didn't even have chemo. So um, just to just to try to accept it and and not and realize that it is a real thing that you're feeling. What yeah, was the so question again? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would I would add I would add to that to say that you know everybody's got something going on. Um, you know, whatever it is, we, we've all got our stuff. And um, I interviewed this one person in the book. Um, his name was Mike. And he talked about um, how somebody at work was constantly pointing out that he had memory problems because this person happened to know that he had had chemo. Yet the person oh. who was criticizing him also had memory problems, and he had never had chemo. So I think you just have to realize that everybody 
has something going on and, and you know, the same kind of idea is don't beat yourself up over it. And if you're slower at something, then you're slower at something, you know. So what? You'll get there eventually. Yeah, I think that's probably some of the best advice. I mean, being 13 years out, some of the doctors told me originally, yeah, you might have it for a little while, but it'll go away. Um, I mean, the reality is nobody knows. And I think you just have to go with it and take it a day at a time and um, find what works for you and really just take it as it comes. I mean, there's no way to treat it as far as we know. There's not enough data to understand where it comes from or how to treat the symptoms of it um, or if it'll ever stop or if it's going to get worse or if it's going to get better. So I think we just need to learn to accept it and um, really just understand that it's an unfortunate side effect of us continuing to be around. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm kind of willing to deal with that to, you know, not have died at 17. So um I think that's really the best advice we can probably give anybody. What was the question again? And, and this is Are you going to introduce yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, do I have to reintroduce myself? It's Kate again. Sorry. Well, and I just have to say that things like Adele's book and Carol's book and are a huge help because when I started going through it a couple of years ago, I felt like I was losing my mind. You know, you feel like you're going crazy until somebody says, oh, honey, it's not just you. Right. A lot of us have this problem. Yeah, and to feel that you're not alone is a really No, I was at an event just a few weeks ago, and there were a couple of us talking about it, and there was a young woman sitting there crying, just weeping. And we said, what's the matter? She says, I thought I was the only one. Right. And just just hearing other people talk about it was just amazing for her, and it took so much weight just off of her shoulders. I, I think, um, this is Idell. I think that um, as more and more oncologists are talking about it and, and validating people for what they're experiencing, you know, I think you'll see less anxiety over it. I, um, one of the people who, who actually wrote me a letter after she um, read the book talk, told me the story about um, she thought she was having a stroke. She actually went to Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and, mm-hmm. and demanded that she have... Um, um, a, a brain imaging study, uh, a, a brain image of her of her brain, yeah. uh, because she thought that she was literally having a stroke. She didn't know. Her doctor had never talked to her about this. So um, I think that oncologists are coming around slowly and are slowly validating what's going on, and that's what we need to hear from the people who we trust to really shepherd us through what's what's happening in our lives. And if you're looking for more validation on this, I I feel like my brain function improved after reading Adele's book because I was Me like, too. oh, some some information here is like this right. is just it's validating and there's sort of like information and education. So her book is called Your Brain After Chemo: A Practical Guide to Lifting the Fog and Getting Back Your Focus. And for more information, she's got a great website. It's yourbrainafterchemo.com. Thank you. Sir, I want to thank you guys all for um, for being on the show tonight and talking about your experiences. It was a really great conversation. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Wonderful show. Wonderful show. Certainly one that bears repeating. Certainly one that bears repeating. (laughs) Certainly one that bears repeating. (laughs) Matt, are we going to talk about this tonight? Certainly one that bears repeating. Sorry, what? Are we going to talk about this? I've been sitting here in a fog waiting to talk about (laughs) chemo break. What was the question? But seriously, uh, before we go, Matt, um, when we were at this uh, at the Scare Tackler, which is you know one of our I2Y signature uh, events, 
um, Dr. Abe Shashua, who is an oncologist at NYU and is the host of the oncology show on Sirius XM Dr. Radio, was there. And he and I were talking, and he was looking around, and he's had us on, on his show many times. And, you know, he's, he's plugged our events and heard about them, but this was his first time attending one. And he said to me, he said, this is great because he could overhear some of the conversations where somebody was like, you know, I went through this and the other and somebody else was like, yeah, I went through that, too. And like, how did you react to this and how did you react to that? And the whole thing about the community that, you know, that I2Y provides as far as support system for the young adult cancer community. It was pretty cool to see it from the practitioner side where, you know, like here's an oncologist who's, you know, at the top of his game, very well known and sees the the, uh, the camaraderie that that, you know, people like us all get talking about our cancer crapness. Exactly. What, how is that relevant to tonight's show? Well, we're talking about, like, people, you know, people have similar experiences. Okay, so let's, let's do the replay right now. All right. Thank you guys for being on the show. Our, our guests, Kate Goldberger, Cammie uh, Jean, Kate Byrne, and Del Davidson. Thank you, guys. Good luck with everything. We'll definitely have to have you back real soon. Thank you. Thank you for Thanks a bunch. All righty, all righty. So that's our show. Uh, Carol, Jack, I guess we'll see you uh, back here next week. Got any plans this week? Actually, I'm going to... Uh, You're going to see Carol in Chicago. I'm going to see Carol in Chicago this Friday. I will be in Chicago uh, Friday, Saturday um, for an event. It's on Facebook. Hope Children's Hospital is having an event at... Uh, I'm going to forget the name of Botchett, but just go to the Chicago group on Facebook, uh, the I2I Chicago group and the, the events in there. 5 to 7 p.m. at uh, some cool bar, me and Johnny. It's at, it's at the Palace Grill on West Madison Street. Jack served a purpose tonight. Woo! From 5 to 8, Saturday, September, November 7th, there's Johnny Irwin, George Paris, and somebody else. Yeah, so if you're in, yeah, somebody else. So if you're in Chicago, uh, I look forward to seeing you there on Saturday. And in, uh, I guess that, that's it. I guess so. All right. Well, now it's time for our uh, have a great week, Carol. I'll talk to you on Friday. Adios, everyone. All right, time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, that's tonight's show. I hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our guests, Kate Goldberger, Cammie Dean, Kate Burton, Adele Davidson. Next week's show, Stupid Testicular Cancer-tacular with Brian LaBelle, Scott Joy from the TC Cancer Forum, and world-class Olympic athlete, Eric Chanteau. If you missed any of our previous broadcasts, check out the archives at stupidcancershow.com or subscribe to our podcast at itunes.i2i.com. If you don't already have Carol's book, Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s, it is available wherever books are sold. Remember, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. We'll see you all back here next week, my friends, live from the chemo deck. Jack Bufard. Carol Rosenthal, Captain Stewie, and I wish you all a pleasant evening. Go to bed, Filbert. Fucker out. <laughs>